but I, I don't want to undersell you know what this movie does achieve and and how well it is made like i was impressed mm-hmm. with a lot of the like you said some of these transitions are really cool the way that because mm-hmm. we didn't talk about this last week but i i should have you know talked to you about this as as the filmmaker like the the challenge of adapting this material is huge like reading a book like that like how do you make that into a movie if you had asked me i would have told you that this is like near impossible to like adapt and have it be something that people enjoy Welcome, friends, to episode 190 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm James. And I'm Luke. And this week, we discuss George Roy Hill's 1972 film, Slaughterhouse-Five. So, interesting. This is a 1972 adaptation, and it hasn't been readapted. And I think we kind of mentioned it last week, but... Kurt Vonnegut was a massive fan of this movie. Yeah, I think I read he, he said that it was a perfect film. <laughs> Interesting exercise, too, because it's almost looking at, like, adaptations then, adaptations now, like, what audiences are expecting, and mm-hmm. also, like, what an author like Kurt Vonnegut would want to see in an adaptation of his work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this movie was uh, really interesting, you know? It, it holds up surprisingly well in most respects. There are a few things that um are unfortunate especially by today's sort of uh right <laughs> standards we're talking about problematic like sort of cultural th- weird yeah some of that stuff is you know it's early 70s and it just really doesn't hold up and some of it's from the book some of it was kind of like played up for the movie and where it would have been better to play it down maybe <laughs> yeah. um but i mean besides that like the movie holds up really well and in fact i would say this movie feels a little bit unstuck in time. It feels like a more modern film than I think audiences were necessarily ready for in the early 70s. Now, I'm no expert in where, you know, cinema was at the time or anything, but I was thinking today about how if we had a version of this story come out on like a Netflix, how you could see it having this following and people thinking it's so weird and interesting... And I can see it coming out in this time frame and appealing to certain people, but other people just going, what the fuck is with this movie? It's so bizarre. I don't like it. And and don't go see it. It's weird. I could see Charlie Kaufman directing an adaptation yeah. of this. You know? It'd be <laughs> like, really interesting. We talked about uh, I'm thinking of ending things, and I feel like that's the exact reaction to a film like that from yeah. an audience. And like to, to, like you said, to trust audiences in the 70s to sort of go... I know there's a lot of experimentation going on with film in like the 60s and 70s, but... Um, yeah, it just feels like a, uh, a film that was ahead of its time in ways, but it's also still a massive, it would still be a massive swing today. And yet, like there was certain situations where I, having just read the source material, I'm looking at the adaptation and I'm like, Ooh, they're, they're sort of attempting to still make it palatable for like a film going audience. And like, there were times that I was like, I understand why it would be tough to, to adapt things directly, but it's sort of like it, it lost a little bit more than maybe more than a little bit of Kurt Vonnegut's voice to me. And, you know, one of the major things is we talked about last week, the the amazing framing device that Kurt Vonnegut's story starts with. It's nowhere to be found in this story. And I think uh, like I talked about how much gravitas and like weight that brought to a story uh, to have it seated in something real in that way. Yeah. Um, 
But this, I, I can also see people responding well to this in the 70s because it is sort of a look back at World War II in, in an unflinching way. And it is dark and it still has some of the comedic elements. For sure. Um, but weird. it just, it doesn't quite uh, feel the same, obviously. You know? Yeah, it's different. It's not it's not the book. Um, yet, I, I was actually impressed with how faithful it was. Um, at times in ways that I was surprised. I was like, there were a lot of things that I would have would have never bet on seeing an adaptation of this you know, of this material. And I was shocked that they made it in there, but you are right in that a, the framing device is, is absent of Kurt Vonnegut writing this novel about Billy Pilgrim. I understand why they omitted it. It is, it is almost one layer too much, I think for a movie like this. Um, and, and it would really start to fuck with a viewer as to like why they should care about any of this. And, um, so, so I understand why you leave it out, but it does the side effect. I think you're right is you, you lose a little bit of that, um, that authorial sarcastic satirical voice that permeates the novel and makes the novel so, so engaging. Um, and instead you're left with more of just like the plot of what happens, which is itself, you know, dark and satirical and, and, uh, and funny, but also sad, um, and all of that works to an extent, um, but yeah, I mean, you do lose you do lose Kurt Vonnegut uh, in a sense, um, and in and, and uh, I, I don't know, it, it it is a weird effect on it, but yeah, this movie was well reviewed. It was nominated for awards, and we'll talk about some of that stuff as well. Yeah, and so it seems like audiences responded well to it. Well, critics did, but I I, I think it kind of flopped as far as like audiences actually watching it. Yeah, that's true. But just overall consensus of the movie, yeah. I think people the people who did, who did see, see it, it maybe liked right. it, right? Uh, and I, w it's so weird to me to think about because it feels like the type of movie that if you go into it without having read the source material, you're going to be very lost along oh, yeah. the way. It's a weird movie. I wonder what percentage of the people that saw it that enjoyed it had also read the source material because I yeah. do think it's a great, it's a great experience to have to see it on film to see some of these moments portrayed. But it's it's also it, it would be so jarring to try to just jump into the movie first and not yeah. know what's happening and i don't know if you would pick up on some of the nuances of like no. what's trying to be said and it does remind me a little bit of i'm thinking of ending things in that way where i felt like having read that book right before we watched the movie really set me up to appreciate it in a way that i when i was noticing a lot of the responses from people who hadn't read the book there's a lot of confusion and i think there was probably yeah. a lot of confusion around this movie too because it is weird and and um it, that framing device that's absent, its presence in the novel gives a lot of context to what's happening, and and it and it sort of highlights the absurdity of it all, and instead it is left fully on the reader or, or sorry the viewer here to interpret that it is sort of this absurd, uh, almost farcical blurring of lines between reality and this science fiction element um, that. You know, it ultimately is a lot of work to ask an audience member to do, but I also think that if you are willing to do it, it can be rewarding, and it, it gives a lot of interesting sort of nuance to this idea that we talked a little bit about in the book of, like, is Billy Pilgrim actually on Trophimador, or however they said it in the movie, or is he, is this all some sort of, like, PTSD dream fantasy he's having when he's, like, having the brain injuries and all this stuff. And I think they lean more into that ambiguity in the movie um, because they can. And, and, and the the framing device, honestly, in the book kind of takes that away. Like, it doesn't really matter because we know it's all fictional in a way that we don't acknowledge in the same fashion in the film. 
Yeah, I think that there are audience members that will watch this as a straight up film, right? I think people are going to some people will will watch it and be like, yeah, it's this it's this war movie, but it's also jumping in time. And, and there's a little bit of like some weird sci-fi elements. But I think there will be people who sort of watch it on a surface level. And maybe uh, George Roy Hill was trying to allow for that by by sort of peeling back some of the extra layers. What do you mean on a, on a surface level? So like just watching it as a as a film about war, like like as a journey through a war and then like some of the PTSD that somebody's dealing with and then not really engage much. Maybe and and again, like you said, maybe think of anything that happens with Charles Flamador or any of that stuff as sort of something that Billy Pilgrim has has created in his mind or something mm. like that. I guess I don't see that as a surface level viewing. I, I think that is an interesting way to view this movie. Really? Because um, I yeah, I mean, I do as well, but I, I guess what I'm getting at is like, there's more threaded into the idea of this being, I guess, with Kurt Vonnegut's story being so anti-war and making commentaries about humans and war. And there's a little bit yeah. that's given at the end, I guess, that you could that you could see. But I felt like the deeper reading was more about mm. like the condition of men and, and humans in general. I do agree that some of the sort of anti-war sentiment is defanged a little bit in the movie. Um it's still there, but it is it's kind of read between the lines stuff that you have to look at. It's more just a character study of this guy who is present at these events and less about sort of the overall tragedy. I don't know. It's still there. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I think I think that's the still the way to read this as an anti-war film. Yeah. Yeah, I think the ending, uh, maybe maybe I just would have liked to have gotten more of what we got at the end through threaded in throughout kind of how Kurt Vonnegut's story goes. But mm. we'll, we'll t- specifically with the uh, Trough Medorian uh, stuff, like because it was so threaded into the story and it felt like most of what we got with them was like the last like 20 minutes of the film. Yeah. Um, but I, I do want to talk about sort of the the filmmaking that's going on in, in this. And I was surprised because... Yeah. I'm realizing we, we, we launched right into the discussion of this and didn't yeah. really give a spoiler-free thought or anything, but... I don't think we've given any heavy spoilers yet. You know, but, like, yeah. we haven't had, like, crazy spoilers, and if you've read the book, you, you already know a lot of this. Um, I, I guess before you talk about that, maybe, mm-hmm. you know, with the, the somewhat of spoilers we've given at this point, do you think this is a movie that people should watch today? What what are your thoughts on that? I think if you're a fan of Kurt Vonnegut and you're a fan of Slaughterhouse Five, uh, absolutely. And if it, like I said, I think if you come to it without any of that background information, uh, hopefully you're familiar with the fact that Kurt Vonnegut, because that's another element, is just like the fact that the person who wrote the story actually went through some of the things that happened, and so yeah, like the, you like lose that's that. Not, Right. You lose that in, mm-hmm. in the film and like that that I feel like is like I said before a lot of weight um, So I you know, do I recommend it? I, I think if you're interested in 70s films I think uh, if you like like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, this is the same director Interesting. Um, Didn't know yeah, that. so so there's that connection I, and uh, like I was I was about to get to with the filmmaking techniques I think there's some fun like creative things that are done with transitions and th- things that are done with yeah. um, Some of the editing that's done using the use of sound and in, tr- in some of the cuts between time and the way that things blend together It feels very dreamlike uh, and I think that it was achieved well with like the time traveling stuff But I don't know. What do you what do you think? Do you do you uh, recommend? Do you think you recommend? I mean, this isn't like the Godfather or even like a Jaws or I was looking at some of the contemporary movies that we've covered that were around this time frame 
mm-hmm. um, you know, we had uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest a few years yep. later after this. Um, Jaws, obviously, and then like, The Godfather comes out right around this, I think the same year. Um, so I'm looking at that and I'm going, okay, so this movie doesn't really stack up with some of the greats from this time frame, but it's a good movie. It's an interesting movie. And I think if you're if you're a fan of film history, I think it is doing some really fascinating things that feel fresh to me for this time frame Um, and and the way that it deals with a lot of the sci fi elements and but but interweaves it in a story that is otherwise on this, you know, ostensibly a fairly serious look at a war and and, and very sort of gritty and, and, and dark. So there's a lot there that's interesting for, I think, a sort of a common viewer. But um, beyond that, yeah, if you're a Kurt, Von- Kurt Vonnegut fan, I think this is a very interesting watch. You should definitely check it out. And then if you're a filmmaker who is thinking about what's like an old hidden gem that is due for a remake that could be really interesting to audiences today, I think this is a great one to look at. Um, you know, read the book, obviously, but... Uh, you could you could look at this film for some interesting reference because there's a lot of good stuff in here. And I think uh, I think this movie would hit today in a way that it, it didn't quite hit in the 70s. Well, and, and a lot of the stories that we talked about being in conversation with Slaughterhouse-Five have been successful, you know, in conversation with Slaughterhouse-Five. So it's kind of primed the audience to to engage with something like this. Um, so, yeah, I agree with that. And just as if you're a filmmaker or a film fan in general, there's a buck wild car chase scene in this movie. Yeah, it <laughs> had so, like, quite a car chase. And yeah. it's funny because I had just written down how um, almost. Well, I, OK, we're going to get into spoilers now. We already have been, but we're I think we're, we're full bore now. So if you really don't want to get into spoilers, I guess back out now. <laughs> We've given our recommendations. Yeah. But, yeah, there's the, when the plane crash happens. I thought the the way they simulated the plane cl- plane crash was hilarious. It was very like funny. Yeah. Everybody, all the actors just like laid on the ground, <laughs> like all at the same time, and they like turned the camera. Essentially, it looked so bad, uh, so ridiculous. So I was also thinking about this with some of these things that they were doing. I was wondering if he was leaning into the fact that it was supposed to be comedic in ways. And like, it was sort of like, I, I don't know. I, I couldn't really tell, but I doubt it. Uh, yeah. It was, you know, it, it was, was probably a, it was like uh, just, uh, uh, you know, how much money do we want to spend on this, making it look yeah. super realistic. And, and this is maybe a time where people don't have that frame of reference of like, they've seen cinematic airplane uh, crashes and have them look really good and kind of know what that should look like. Whereas yeah. maybe they didn't have that reference at the time. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it's good enough, right? Like, it's not like it was yeah, like... Yeah, it does the trick, I guess. Yeah. But then, um, yeah, and then, like, shortly after that, we get this car scene where uh, his wife is just running into all these different vehicles, going up and down ramps, like, driving yeah. backward. Like, the stunts that were being pulled off incredible. were incredible. Like, I couldn't help but think about how difficult it would be to pull off that entire sequence Yeah, with the stunts that are being done, and, like, people's lives were definitely on the line for some of those crashes. Oh, for you sure. You know what I mean? Yeah. Crazy. That's, and that's the, you know, that's that classic cinema you know, car stuff that that people talk about a lot is like it's really threaded into yeah. film history. Yeah, like movies like Bullet like really set the tone for what car chases would be, mm-hmm. and like it still you know holds true today. Like something like a movie I love, Baby Driver, uh, how oh, yeah. it's still so much fun to make like cool car chase scenes. Like it just it's I really need to watch that movie. It's fun. You really should. Yeah. Um, one thing I wanted to point out was the typewriter stuff. Um, I, I thought like that was a nod towards 
the Kurt Vonnegut frame. Like we kind of give Billy Pilgrim a a frame where he's writing. He's, he seems to be writing a letter, not a not a book. Um, but I felt like that was sort of a nod in that sense. Um, I, I'm glad they didn't stick with it too much. For a minute there, I thought we were going to have to like read a ton of lines. It was just enough to where I was like, this is cool. Okay, this is starting to get old. Okay, they're done. That's good. Yeah. I actually, yeah, I really liked how the typewriter looked. Like I was thinking about practically how they set that up and I was like, that looks great. Like just seeing it like just like locked down on the typewriter and have everything revealed that it just looks awesome and i know it's been done a million times but it, this one particularly looks really nice um i feel like we're really getting into this here and i don't want to i don't want to skip over george roy hill i want to yeah. i do want to talk about him before we i don't get, know anything about him uh george roy hill was an american film director he's most noted for directing such films as butch cassidy and the sundance kid in 1969 and the sting in 1973 both starring paul newman and robert redford other Hill films include Slaughterhouse Five, The World According to Garp. I've heard of that one. The World According yeah. to Garp. Yeah. You probably heard of a couple of these actually. Okay. The World of Henry Orient, Hawaii, Thoroughly Modern Millie, The Great Waldo Pepper, Slapshot, Funny Farm, A Little Romance, and The Little Drummer Girl. Nope. <laughs> I don't think I've heard any of those other ones. <laughs> I mean, Butch Cassidy. I, yeah, that like, one clearly I Butch of, Cassidy, yeah. the Sundance Kid, and this thing. Were, were... So that's like the it, that's the movie when people say that that's the movie they're talking about. There's not something else like a show or something they're referring to. I, I guess I don't know the history of that property. Like he Butch is Cassidy the, and the Sundance. Yeah, thing? he's the originator. Like he wrote yeah. and directed this movie, and that's what everybody references. He directed it. I'm not 100 percent if he wrote it, but okay. yeah, he that was sort of his like he had, uh, he had directed other other things, but Butch, Ca- Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid was a massive hit. Wow! And then he and then he, he I think soon after you know a couple of years I think he might have had one or two more, but then he did Slaughterhouse Five, and then followed that eventually like a year later with The Sting, which was also did really well. Um, yeah. So he has an interesting way of getting into film, though. Uh, and I thought that with Kurt Vonnegut's history, we need to definitely talk about this. Okay. Um, during World War II, Hill served in the United States Marine Corps as a transport pilot in the South Pacific. The outbreak of the Korean War resulted in his recall to active duty uh, service for 18 months as a night fighter pilot, attaining the rank of major. After the war, he was stationed at the Marine Corps Air Station Cherry Point. So he also, you know, is coming from a background yeah. of having served in World War Two and and uh, Korea. I wonder if some of his feelings of on the war affected some of the messaging behind this movie because it, it felt ever so slightly different. Like the the target was shifted a little bit, um, and I wonder if that was maybe his own like how he felt about the the material. That was my thought as well. Like some of the time. Uh, the portrayal of like the military felt m- more serious than and there were very serious moments with Kurt Vonnegut but like something about maybe even just seeing it uh, yeah. basically the way that he got into film was actually through theater on his return to the U.S. Hill studied theater at HB studio in New York City he acted off-Broadway and toured with Margaret Webster's Shakespeare repertory company he used his Korean War experience as the basis for a TV drama, My Brother's Keeper, which appeared on Kraft Television Theater with Hill himself in the cast. During his military service at Cherry Point, he had to be talked down by a ground controller at, at Atlanta Airport, an incident that led to his writing the screenplay. The episode was performed and transmitted live in 1953, um, and then Hill returned to Broadway in 1957 as director of the Pulitzer Prize winning play Look Homeward Angel. He continued to direct television, uh, notably episodes of the craft theater, including A Night to Remember, the story of the sinking of the Titanic, a two-parter, which Hill also wrote. And for this, he, he earned an Emmy for writing and directing. 
Hill's success as a theater director led to his first feature as director, the film version of Period of Adjustment in 1962, starring Jane Fonda and Jim Hutton. It was a box office success. Hill had huge commercial success with Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, based on a script by William Goldman and starring Paul Newman and Robert Redford. The, fil the film received seven Academy Award nominations, including Best Picture and Best Director, and won four, including Best Song, Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head. Uh, William Goldman, as in The Princess Bride, William Goldman, apparently. <laughs> I just looked it up. Yeah, I, actually, that's the connection. That's what you you and I had talked about this, actually, off off air, where, where we were talking about how... We definitely talked about Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid before. Yeah. So yeah, wow. William Goldman. Yeah, William Goldman. Uh, what a what a writer. Uh, yeah, our, uh, our our Princess Bride coverage, especially the book episodes where we get to talk about him as a screenwriter and novelist, is a really interesting guy. And yeah, that connection. Uh, maybe we mentioned that uh, in that coverage. I don't know, but that, that that's we definitely mentioned that he wrote Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. I yeah. don't know if we were if we went in talking about um, George Roy Hill. Yeah, probably not. But still interesting very interesting so uh eventually in 1972 he directed slaughterhouse five it premiered at the 25th Cannes film festival where it won the jury prize and was nominated for the palme d'or the film also won a hugo award for best dramatic presentation and a saturn award for best science fiction film so that was this one and again some of these awards i was really surprised at like how people were responding to it to be nominated yeah. to win the jury prize like kind and to of be a, nominated for the palme d'or kind of a critical darling seems yeah. like like i said i wonder how much of that has to do with like people being just amazed by the story in general and maybe having already read kurt vonnegut's novel as well i mean part of it but i i don't want to undersell you know what this movie does achieve and and how well it is made like i was impressed mm -hmm. with a lot of the like you said some of these transitions are really cool the way that because mm -hmm. we didn't talk about this last week but i i should have you know talked to you about this as as the filmmaker like the the challenge of adapting this material is huge like reading a book like that like how do you make that into a movie if you had asked me i would have told you that this is like near impossible to like yeah. adapt and have it be something that people enjoy yeah so so you know the level of difficulty is, is off the charts and yes. what he was able to achieve i think is really commendable and um the unstuck in time uh conceit is portrayed really well and, and it's not over the top we don't get like uh you know wormholes or anything it's just yeah. transitions yeah i think part of that was because he just they decided to not do the uh tralfamadorian stuff like to, in order like because i think maybe if they had done that earlier on it would have felt more alien and and in this way like you said you could allow the audience to just think like it had to do with trauma and then this this plane crash and stuff well, I mean, I think some of that is right out of the book, though, right? Like, th there are times where the past bleeds into the present for him. Like, he'll hear sounds from the past, he'll see things from a different time, and there's this overlap. The clapping, I think, was described in the book the same way, where it's, like, happening in two different times at the same time. And it it's so cool to take that and put it into the movie. Like, we're used to seeing transitions like that today. Like, people do this all the time just to be clever, but I think at the time, this was like to signify that there is true overlap in these moments and that he is hearing things across time. And when I started thinking of it that way, I thought that there's a lot of really clever filmmaking being done. Like the moment where he's wrapped in the blanket in the trail car, when this wasn't really in the book, I don't think. He's wrapped up in this blanket and he's barely peeking out. And then all of a sudden he's wrapped in the blanket 
in the hospital and he's peeking out at his mother and like just the the visual way they're able to link those two scenes and they put the camera in the blanket so you get this cool pov shot like there's just a lot of cool filmmaking going on yeah the things that were most impressive to me when we're talking about transition were the actual like matching transitions where it would be like a, a shot of his face in you know in the like present supposedly where he's like an older man and then a matching transition to him like laying in the snow or something like that and then there's one one really great one that was like a hallway it was like a battlefield oh yeah hallway yeah. and then it transitions to the hallway in the in the hospital and that doctor's walking down it right and i think the doctor's walking down it in the war and then like all of a sudden he's in the hospital yeah exactly it's like a dissolve like transition that's like it's, completely matching it looks great and and they're doing this some practical way with some sort of you know what i mean like this isn't see this isn't in the computer <laughs> you know you had to do dissolves like in the actual editing bay like you had to like create the dissolve in the film in the film yeah when you're cutting the film it's amazing it's like like film wizardry it's really interesting that they're they're able to do this i guess it's like today like if they were to do that i would assume it was done in a computer and it probably would be but it's it's cool to see all this stuff and go well they had to find a way to do this practically <laughs> you know which like especially with how the dome looked on that planet and stuff I, i'm sure it was a miniature but like i could see the people moving around in the dome and like in the, there's these fireworks going like there was a lot of cool stuff that go went into that final scene i was very impressed yeah i mean ultimately i agree with you i uh i guess i just still think so much of it has to do with the original story in yeah. this case specifically like you know typically i'm all for for but it, like something about this story feels so connected to the source material and that like the success feels like it's a fascination with that but i don't know yeah interesting i mean i I, you mean i love this book so you're not gonna get a lot of argument from me there but i was pleasantly surprised with how much i liked this movie and i mean like we we get this we get the silly coat we get the silver boots these were just sort of fun details in the book that i thought were just kind of like um a character moment for billy to be kind of ridiculous but how it was really uh an interesting visual thing in the in the movie where it really helped us like keep an eye on Billy and like be able to tell him apart from everyone else and really show how he's different and how he is standing out in the war. Um, I don't know. There's it's so many things from the book. I, I thought were really smartly adapted and used in, in interesting ways in this movie. Do you want to move into the plot now so that we can kind of go chronologically? Sure. Let's do it. In Ilium, New York, the middle-aged Billy Pilgrim writes a letter to the editor claiming to have become unstuck in time. He finds himself as a young man behind enemy lines in Belgium during World War II, where he and a number of other American troops are captured by the Germans. A fellow prisoner of war, Paul Lazaro, develops a grudge against Billy and vows to kill him. At a camp, Lazaro attacks Billy, but is intercepted by an older POW, Edgar Derby. Billy and Edgar develop a friendship. The Americans are set to be transferred to Dresden for the duration of the war and are asked to elect a leader. When Lazaro nominates himself billy nominates edgar for the role and edgar is acclaimed after lazaro steps down in dresden the pow's are placed in a slaughterhouse slaughterhouse five during dinner sirens sound off and the pow's head to shelter the firebombing of dresden commences during which billy believes 100,000 perish the pow's emerge and the germans have them sort sort through the ruins for survivors warning looting will be punished when edgar discovers a dancing figurine he pockets it and is executed by a nazi firing squad so 
Wow, that's like all of the war. <laughs> like, so really quick, I, I said chronologically, but I think this is going to be in sections in, in terms of like, what, I guess it's more intelligible that no, way. No, it's chronological if you were to take the entire plot and lay it out in chronological order, but that's not the order in which we, we watch the movie, um, which is interesting because I, I was talking about last week how I found all these different uh, summaries and, and I tried to find one that I liked. One of the problems I was having was exactly this. It was people had taken it and, and laid it out actual chronological order, which is weird because that's not how the story is really conveyed. But it's OK. We can talk about it this way. Um, I want to talk about Paul Lazaro because I felt like they actually made him into even more of a character. Like he, he's, you know, he's a character in the book, but like, you know, spending time with him and the moment where he's trying to correct that officer of like how to spell his name. And then he like he kind of gets into this, you know, big brawl and, and goes after Billy. Like there's a couple more sort of just like highlight moments for him to where when he kills, he personally kills Billy in the future. Um, we I don't know. It just it, it makes a lot more sense. Whereas in the book, I'd almost forgotten about that connection at first. And I was like, Oh wait, that was that, what that one guy said. I didn't make, I didn't really, it didn't feel as important to the story as this well, made so, it. Feel. Honestly, in the book, a lot of really important details are doled out to us in ways that don't feel important. Right. I think that was the point. And, so, like, and maybe they're in this, not in Vonnegut's eyes, but in the movie, exactly. They are, that's yeah. the point of, and so it goes, yeah. which we'll also talk about not being in this movie. Yeah. I was so um, surprising. No one ever said, so it goes like it just never just happened. one time. Yeah. Even once, even the Tropimadorians at the end, I was like, just say it one time. Yeah. I, I was, couldn't believe it. Yeah. A hundred times in the book, zero times in the movie. Very odd. Yeah. But I agree. I, I did. It made it gave it more weight when he did kill him. And it led it had like sort of a, a thread that that goes through the movie that you could follow a little easier. But yeah, I wonder if it's like Vonnegut's intention was to make it feel not as important because death, as the Trophimodorians talk about, isn't really as important as it as humans view it as. It's yeah. sort of, you know, we're going to get into that. But um, you made me think of it. So I want to say it. The the way Trophimodorians view death and the way that that affects Billy and how he views death, and that 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 sort of fourth dimensional message behind the book is maybe the thing that is the most watered down, other than maybe some of Vonnegut's voice. It yep. didn't seem to me that the filmmaker grasped it on the same level that Vonnegut does, and or just couldn't execute it yeah, at that level. But the Trophimadorians you know? were just way different, right? Like right. they they didn't they didn't behave the same way that they do in the book a little bit. I mean, there was a couple of similarities, but they were played more as a joke. I, I don't think they were given the weight and their, their, their perspective was just kind of absurd and it wasn't given the weight that it is given yeah. in the book. And it felt like these Trophimodorians in the film could have just been humans from another planet that's abducted humans to like watch. And, and they didn't feel as alien as, as uh, Vonnegut's. Well, did. they're you know, disembodied and, and you know, yeah. they, very weird. I, uh, so anyway, back back to the war stuff, though. Um, one thing that I forgot to talk about last week, and this movie reminded me of it, the American Nazi shows up. Uh, this guy, he's wearing this bizarre outfit. He's got stars and stripes on his outfit, yet he's got swastikas, and he gives this speech about like why his way is the right way and all this stuff. Um, this is all right out of the book. And I forgot to tell you that this character is a recurring character in... Uh, in Vonnegut's work. He has his own book where he's, I think, the main character in it. I think Mother Night, maybe? Yeah, yeah I read something about which that. Which is really interesting, right? Like, he's this American Nazi. I'm like, wow, you know, what does that book like? But, um, oh, seriously. I, I, a, a blend of a Nazi and an American 
um, showing up on screen in this day and age to me hit pretty hard. It was like, yeah, those attitudes are so present and so ingrained in in a lot of American society and cause so many problems to this day. This idea of like communism and socialism is the real enemy and um, wrapping yourself up in white supremacy. And like Vonnegut was calling that out, you know, back then. That's pretty impressive to me. Yeah, again, like that, that feels timely. Yeah. Which just says something about America that that probably always should feel timely. Again, a character that I didn't think as much about in the book, but then when he showed up on screen, I was like, whoa, this is fucking wild. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and he's like in the he's in the slaughterhouse with them when the bombs are coming down. I don't th- remember if he is in the book. I kind of don't think he is. But again, like things just aren't don't feel as important in the book sometimes. So it could be that he was in there. I thought he left. I, f- I feel like he leaves before the bombs actually fall in the book, but could be wrong. I was happy to see, uh, I thought that the person who played Edgar, Eugene Roach, uh, killed it. And yeah. I was happy to see the moment between Billy and Edgar uh, when he when Edgar becomes the leader. But it was funny throughout that he kept trying to like talk to the Germans and be like, I'm the leader. And like they wouldn't take him seriously. Yeah, throughout. completely ignored him. But yeah. it was clear that he felt important in that sense. Like he felt like he'd been elected. He kept saying like the men elected me when it wasn't really like it, it was, it was kind of tragic and sad. He He's a really interesting character and, and I liked him a lot in, in this version. I, I think he's likable in the book, but not to this level, this, this portrayal and this version of this character um, was a lot more heroic. He does still die. And like a, a really shocking, I think if you're a general audience member watching this and have no idea about the book, you think this guy's going to have some sort of heroic end or something, and instead he gets executed for this figuring he steals, um, just like out of the fucking blue. Um, and I thought that was pretty brutal and, and, and a cool moment. Um, but yeah, it, it again, that storyline just feels a few like degrees different than it was. More important. Yeah, it seems like it has more of an effect on the plot. You know yeah. what I mean? More of an arc, more of something going on. It's it's really hard to put my finger on it, but it just it just feels a little different. Not necessarily better or worse. It's just it's just different. I think we just like you said, we get more context. We get more about the character. We get to be become attached to the character. And something about Vonnegut's novel feels like much more especially from the way that he's narrating it, it feels more removed and like these yeah, it just feels like snapshots of things flying by us, and especially because it's all over the place, j- just like the film. But well, it we, really we is. didn't talk about the other, the other, um, and I don't remember the name, but the other woman that the uh, novel is dedicated to, I believe, is from that biblical story about the the wife who looks back. She's told not to look back, and she chooses to look back anyway, and is turned to a pillar of salt. And Vonnegut says, "I I love her for that." because it's such a human thing to do. And I think that that's... Gerhard, Gerhard Mueller is the other person that the book is dedicated to. And is that who that is? Maybe? I don't... I'm not sure. <laughs> okay. Well, if it's not her, then it doesn't matter, because that story is definitely given in the book. Whether or not it's dedicated to her, I don't know. But um, he... The reason I think he gives that story is that Kurt Vonnegut is himself looking back despite the fact that he knows what effect it's going to have on him it's going to turn him into a pillar of salt at least metaphorically right to look back yet he feels compelled to do so um and i think that that's why he gets the story whether or not that's the dedication i don't know 
Yeah, I, I don't think it is the, okay. I just looked it up, this person is the German taxi driver who takes the narrator and Bernard O'Hare oh. to the real life slaughterhouse where they took shelter. That's right, yeah, because he talks about riding in that, with that taxi driver. Okay, interesting. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was the woman that was turned to salt, but I, I got the names wrong. Regardless, uh, that, that, that story is given in the book, so I think it is still important. And the commentary that, that Vonnegut is making with the idea of her looking back and he loves her for that is because it's relatable, is because it's like impossible not to look at the horrors and all that other stuff. When, yeah. when talking about war too, like um, it's something that you have to confront. I don't know if you, I don't know. And there's probably a commentary about religion in there as well. Yeah, it's interesting that he actually does recite like a prayer. It's kind of dropped later, which I was glad because I thought it was going to be real weird if we were going to introduce a whole religious element to Billy Pilgrim that doesn't really exist in the in the in the book. But um, it seems to be kind of dropped. Like maybe he was just well, he doing is it. like a chaplain. Yeah, he was just doing it because that was like never his, addressed in the book. That really. was his job, yeah. I guess. So he's like, I yeah. guess I'll just do it. So I think it does make sense. Yeah. All right. So the second part here, after the war, Billy marries the wealthy Valencia, whose father owns an optometry school, and Billy goes into the field. They have two children, Robert and Barbara. Robert becomes a troubled adolescent, at one point caught by the police vandalizing a Catholic cemetery. Billy bribes the police. Billy also treats Valencia to a Cadillac. Billy and his father-in-law, Lionel Merble, board a private jet for an optometry convention. When Billy looks out the window and sees men in ski masks, he has a premonition of the plane crashing en route, which it does. Lionel is killed, but Billy is found alive and taken to the hospital. On her way to the hospital, a distressed Valencia has multiple accidents and the Cadillac's exhaust is destroyed, causing her to die of carbon monoxide poisoning. Gotta start with Valencia. This character was rough. Um, there was yep. a ton of fat shaming throughout. Uh, a lot of that is present in the book, but it felt like they tripled down on it to me or something mm-hmm. about putting it on screen made it just felt, feel worse. Um, she, she was just kind of a joke throughout, like she was a punchline constantly and it was just a little even her death, all of that stuff. And yeah, again, she from was the book a little bit foolish, but. you know, did it to herself, just ridiculous. She's shrill, you know, at different points in time, like when they go to the, to the movie theater. Um, yeah, it just, yeah, it, it, it felt, it felt like there was a threat of misogyny in this book or I'm sorry, in, in this movie and maybe a little bit of it is in the book too, but um, I know it's a different time. I know that, um, but it just watching it today, it was tough. Yeah. And you have to think about the commentary that's being made with uh, Valencia and then Montana and the way that Billy is engaging with oh, each yeah. of them. He Fantasizing kind of, about this other woman. Yeah. He despises, he kind of hates his wife. He never says he does, but in the book, in the book, it's like stated though. But yeah, in the movie, yeah, I guess also. maybe. Yeah, it's it's it, both times. It just seems like he likes her. OK, but he he's not attracted to her. He's only really attracted to 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 Wild Hack, which, you know, what's funny. I, I, I was just thinking about how the name Wild Hack. I wonder if that's Vonnegut making a sort of a self-aware joke. He's like, I'm going to have the, have this actress that he's going to like have sex with and I'm going to call her, name her Wild Hack because that's what, I, <laughs> what a writer like, who comes uh, maybe, up with this man, kind of character know. maybe is. I don't know. <laughs> I could see him making a, having like a little fun with wordplay there. I could see it. Yeah. Uh, the name itself, like I'm sure he was going for like a, the Playboy yeah. model kind of thing that that's clearly, I mean, it sounds like could be yeah just the name itself there was a there was a, a, a perviness to this movie too that uh yeah it was a little weird um i couldn't tell if yeah. there was like the, the like free like the sex positive free love stuff yeah. of the 60s and early and then into the 70s if that was going on yeah or if it it, was... some of it feels like that like that like 
pushing the envelope edginess like we're gonna just like show tits a lot and we're gonna do that you know like it, it did feel a little bit of like just pushing the envelope um so maybe that was some of it um but it reads a, is a bit pervy especially with how the women are sort of dealt with throughout um you know they're, they're basically either dumb shrill or sexual objects every time a woman is on screen yeah but anyway so <laughs> let's talk about let's talk about the uh the family we'll talk about the cadillac and well let's start so let's start with the plane crash oh we talked yeah, about yeah, it yeah a little bit already but it's so interesting the moment that i thought it was visually interesting to have billy look out and see these like skiers that he's having a premonition of or whatever and the, just the masks that they're wearing so the helmets and stuff looks very alien yeah i, uh, I think that was a detail out of the book um, yeah. they were they were said to to look like that um which is i don't know it looked odd but yeah i mean i i, I get what they're going for the the moment that sticks out to me as an interesting change is to have billy trying land the plane like try and get the plane to land um and that's when i was talking about how it felt to me like the filmmaker didn't quite understand the fourth dimensional v- viewing that's what it said to me or maybe he didn't have confidence that the audience would because billy knows that the plane's going to crash and he gets on it anyway in the book it's not even a thing because he's like, there's nothing. He can't change time. He's just along for the ride. Whereas here, he tries to. He tries to get it to land, and and that hasn't really been set up in in the movie, I guess. But maybe you would wonder, like, why doesn't he do something? But like, if you really want to lean into that fourth dimensional thinking, this is a betrayal of that in a way. Yeah, and that's that's sort of what I was talking about with the fact that we only get sort of the idea and the the answers of the Trophimadorian stuff at the end of this story, whereas I feel like Vonnegut threaded it in throughout so that when he was getting on that plane, we were aware. We were aware much earlier in the story. Yeah, that, he like, mentions the he plane crash early on. Yeah, he's like, I'm going to have right. to be in a plane crash. Like, all, all this stuff yep. gets mentioned right at the start, really. Yeah, and so to, yeah, the free will thing, it, it would have definitely been interesting, like, like jarring for an audience to to see him just, like, sort of sit there. But also... Leaning into that might have been interesting. I, yeah. I would have liked to have seen that if he just like kind of sat on the plane and you could tell that he was having a premonition or whatever. Yeah, and he like knows everyone's gonna die, and he's just like, well, mm-hmm. I can't stop it, you know, because that's how it is in the book. So you know, right? And I guess the argument could be made like, has he come to? Maybe he's been told about this fourth dimensional stuff. This is in the in the books or in the movie's perspective, not the books. But he's been told about this stuff, but it's whether or not he accepts to live by it yet. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Maybe he's well, like trying to test the waters and see if it's true that free will is a, a lie in terms of in yeah. the Trophimadorians. Well, perspective. and the other thing it does is it lends credence to the idea of the time travel being real in a way that the book doesn't. You know, because if 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 the time travel isn't real and Billy Pilgrim is actually experiencing PTSD and he feels unstuck in time and, and at, at adrift in his own life, but it, it's more of like a psychological thing or like some sort of brain damage, then he wouldn't be able to change anything because he would, he doesn't actually know the future. He just feels like he does. So in that sense, it lines up and you wouldn't have the free will to change things. But in the movie, having him go, Hey, the, the plane's going to crash. That says to everybody, this guy actually knows the future for sure. Because otherwise, why would he say that? Yeah, that's true. So the we talked about the car scene, but let's just like reiterate how insane it is. Um, <laughs> yeah, she's driving down the road, and she just straight up starts slamming into the cars. Yeah, she's hysterical, uh, out of control. She, she's hysterical. The first the first car that that gets hit 
he's like, wait, your your exhaust has fallen off or whatever. Uh, and she's like, she starts driving away and she's slamming into every car. Yeah. She loops back and forth multiple times. The cops start chasing her. Yeah. She starts getting the cops to slam into other cars yeah. and each other and stuff. Uh, and it's all played. Be, it's all played like she's like just hysterical on her way to yeah. Billy and doesn't care about any of this happening. And it was a lot more tragic in the in the book to me. Like this was the moment where I felt worse for her. Like she was she was really upset about her husband being in this in this uh, plane crash, and she she gets hit and she just is so upset. She's like, I can't stop here. I got to get to the hospital. And she drives to the right, hospital, which made sense. That's it. Like that made sense. Yeah. One small accident and like the the exhaust falls off. She can't stay. She keeps going. I get that emergency situation. Yeah. And then the the it slowly fills up with the carbon dioxide or whatever. And then yeah. by the time she gets there, she you know asphyxiates and it's really tragic. And here right. it's it's a big joke, and like I felt like a lot of the the actors were like looking at each other like uh, women, am I right? You know, like don't know how to it drive. You know, like I said, one of the most buck wild, <laughs> just like yeah. slamming into cars. Like it was it was wild out of nowhere. Yeah, yeah, completely played for comedy. I mean, I, I and I liked the the stunts. Like it was all interesting, but um, yeah, the way it the way they deal with this character, just it, yeah, uh, unfortunate in my opinion. Oh, one thing I got to mention, the puppy. Adorable at first, Spot. I love the through line of Spot getting older, but that dog doesn't just get older. That dog changes into a different kind of dog at the end. (laughs) It was a short-legged dog, and then all of a sudden it's a full-size dog, and I was like, you know, dogs don't go from adulthood to old age and become a different kind of dog. I'm sure they couldn't get one that looked, like, visually right, you know, that they couldn't, like, get access to one, but it just I just thought it was funny that they just completely changed the the breed of the dog at the end that was a cool transition though when when they walk out of frame as a puppy come back in a frame yeah. the seasons change I thought that was and, the and the again lighter. that's clever Very filmmaking cool. right like you're using details that are in the book but you're you're using them visually to tell this story of the passing time i didn't like the repeated joke with the wife uh, about oh i've got a, diff- a new you know cake or pie or something you know and and she repeatedly says she's gonna lose weight and then doesn't oh my god you know right anyway just real quick, I did want to say I like that they used the the actors with makeup on to appear older. They didn't like, I don't think for the most part, they didn't swap anybody out. Um, it's just, you know, the actor made up to look older and look younger. Um, I, I like doing that. It, it, it didn't confuse me in a way in which I felt like I would have been confused if like older Billy Pilgrim was a different actor. I would have been like, wait, what's going on? Instead, there, you know, and, and I think the the it was convincing which I was impressed I bought it, with, yeah. like how how you looked yeah. like an older man. Um, His like voice that. even sounded much different, yeah. and, and like I bought that as well, and and like I think that was all part of the performance. Yeah, uh, good stuff. I think he was nominated for this also. So. I could see it, and I think also believe it's his his film debut. Like his acting debut. Oh, that's cool. Uh, it, um, one thing I did notice. Remember how last week I talked to you about how on YouTube I looked up the bombings, and there was footage of the bombings. That's, we, u- that's, we got it in the that's used in this movie. Yeah. That exact footage is the footage I saw. So they used the real firebombing of Dresden footage, and they just put it in the movie. Um, it's, it's an interesting choice. I was wondering how they were going to deal with it, and they kind of went the way I assumed they would, where they don't have maybe the budget to show a freaking city blowing up. So instead, we get some of the aftermath, which look good, and we just get like them in the in the slaughterhouse. Yeah. Some of the and like I felt like there were situations where they were like kind of holding their bud. They were trying to save some of their budget in certain in certain sets in certain areas. And then the end, I was like, oh, man, are they going to be able to pull this off? Like, are they going to pull off like just like the the carnage that was left behind at Dresden? And they did it really well. Yeah. I thought that scene piles, that, that burning bodies, really, you know, it looked yeah. good. I, I 
for some reason it 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 did feel like um it didn't quite hit the same note of tragedy that the book does yeah Um, maybe that that detail of all the of all the girls that are in like the nearby i think he goes to like they actually walk in on them or something and there's all these girls nearby and then like there's a detail about them all getting boiled alive like there's all these like just disturbing details that um yeah we don't really get in the movie and instead we get some some girls like up in windows waving at him kind of throughout and then we get the implication that i guess they all got just killed by these bombs but i don't know like really driving home the death of the citizens um it it, i don't know it just wasn't quite as powerful in the in the movie to me the only point i feel like they were even really addressing it was the little boy had like a girlfriend or somebody that he liked that he kept like trying to impress uh and like then he's like in the bunker with all the americans and everything when the firebombing happens and then he like runs out and like runs and tries to find his mom or something. Yeah. And tries, like he's running around the city trying to, and he's just yeah. Like, he runs into a burning building and they have to, like the firefighters yeah. have to pull him out. Yeah, that was yeah. an interesting moment for sure. And and it, you know, we do that. That is another moment where the POV gets shifted. Like we we're seeing something that Billy didn't experience firsthand. Um. So it's it's another changing POV moment from what we get in the book, which is very localized to what Billy and the narrator would have been able to experience. All right, I'm going to read this last bit here. Okay. Billy is released from the hospital and opts to live alone over the objections of Barbara. Robert has reformed and enlisted for the Vietnam War. While alone, Billy is abducted to the alien planet of Tralfamador, along with film actress Montana Wildhack. The Tralfamadorians live in the fourth dimension and teach Billy the universe is made up of random moments strung together. When one dies, they go back to another point in their life, and it is up to them to focus on good moments and ignore the bad. The Tralfamadorians hope Billy and Montana will mate. Billy and Montana fall in love and have a child, whom Montana names Billy Jr. On Earth, Billy argues with Barbara about the existence of Tralfamador. Billy, being able to travel into the future as well as the past, shares a vision of his death in which he is shot by an elderly Lazaro while giving a speech about Tralfamador. Yeah. Um, so the, the, the Tralfamador, I guess as they say in the movie, um, I, I just don't think this works as well as it does in the book um yeah it, it felt to me like they looked at it and they said man this is this is ridiculous so let's make it more of a joke than it even is um mm-hmm. and i thought the repeated uh voice saying are you mating now are you going to yeah. mate are you mating now it, it was right. it was like okay we're just really playing this as for laughs but it makes no sense like why would why would a Trophimodorian be impatient like there's no there are fourth dimensional beings who don't perceive time the same way like there's no reason for that so so the movie sort of disagrees with itself in order to make a joke um right and and those are the kind of moments where it felt like okay he didn't he wasn't taking this part of it as seriously whereas this is actually really important for the overall themes of the story is to nail this fourth dimensional f- feeling and to to really sell the themes of like yeah, focusing on the good moments and 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 trying to ignore the bad or or forget the bad, and um, you don't get that. It doesn't have the same power when you're undercutting it in that way. Yeah, it feels like a director wasn't extremely comfortable leaning into the sci-fi elements as much as was maybe necessary in order to really set it up and be serious about it. Um, it feels more about like if you read the book, you're expecting to see it, so we have to put it in the movie. Yeah. Yeah, and and you know they did a lot with like him seeing the in the drive-in, him seeing her. I, 
think he even sees her in that magazine. Like, there's a few moments where he sees her to where if this is some sort of, like, fantasy, and it plays as honestly as, like, a deathbed fantasy almost, or, or someone who has brain damage having a fantasy, that's how it plays. Um, it lines up, and you could read it as that and go, oh, this isn't actually happening. And so it gives a lot of grist for the mill for people who want to read this movie that way. Um Again, I think there are a few times where it contradicts that, but that's okay. You know, there's, there can be there can be some ambiguity there. I guess is what they're going for, um, because this whole, I mean, the way that she behaves, she's like a total like I don't know what's the word. <laughs> she's airheaded. She's just like kind of completely sexualized. She's immediately wanting to like have sex with him after like the briefest of interactions. Um, it's you know, it's it's ludicrous, honestly, and. Um, some of that is present in the book, but I feel like if you want to make this land in a film, you needed to spend a little more time selling it. Um, and instead they do the opposite and, and, and they really lean into this almost being just like, this is just a male fantasy for Billy Pilgrim, you know, and, and, um, you know, the Chopin Medorians are all ridiculous anyway. It doesn't have to be, yeah. The audience yeah. doesn't even have to really engage with it yeah. and say, like, is this real or not? It's kind of clear the movie's saying it's not, it, potentially. Like, it's. Like, if there wasn't for a couple of moments, you know, so I think there is still ambiguity there, but, like, it feels unreal. Like, it's yeah. so ludicrous. And I don't know. I'm sure part of that is the moment we're in today versus the moment they were in in the 70s and, you know, perspective. Um, you know, is is always a you know a big thing. It's like it, it, there's always the question, right? Of like, do we view projects for the moment they came out and the lens that contemporary viewers would have viewed them in, or do we view it as who we are today? And I, I think right. we always try and do a little bit of both, but like we kind of have to do how both. It, yeah. how it goes, right? And it's, it, each of those perspectives is going to be different. So this also lines up with this idea that they the and so it goes. F- phrase is never stated and yeah. that idea it's just I so feel it like, goes by the way I, I noticed we were saying that a lot he just says so it goes he doesn't say and so it goes in the book now it's said a hundred times so they might throw an and in there a couple times but I'm, I'm pretty sure it's almost always just so it goes gotcha uh, okay anyway the <laughs> the idea of uh what it meant to the story and what it meant to death and the seriousness that yeah. it brings in a, in a novel that takes things it takes a comedic look at things that are very dark um I think was needed in this story to try to like be meta enough to say like um especially the repre- the repeated use of it yeah. is almost like ridiculous at some point but it's not in the novel it's actually it gives it more weight each time. Yeah. I, I don't think you could the, say it as much in the movie it wouldn't it it would take up too much time you couldn't say it all the time but you needed to at least say it once like right give the nod right at least once. Yeah, I would have liked to have seen it like multiple times so that we could get the weight well, of like what it means. And and the Trophimadorians specifically giving that phrase to him. It's their philosophy. And instead we get this kind of hello, goodbye, hello, goodbye thing at the end. And that doesn't have the same weight as, right. you know, viewing a corpse as just to be in a bad, a bad shape at the moment, but was perfectly fine in other moments like that. That stuff is all brilliant from the book. And it is unfortunate that it doesn't it doesn't quite make it into the movie. And in the way that I would have liked to see. I agree. Yeah. And interestingly enough, we have to talk about this, which we we kind of touched on. But Kurt Vonnegut said uh, he loves George Roy Hill and Universal Pictures. And they made a flawless translation of my novel. Yeah. I mean, come on. And like, it, it, 
first off, he had a couple of, uh, at least one other adaptation that apparently was pretty bad. It was made later. But like, this is a good movie. And he and I'm sure he was fully aware of it's a different medium. Things had to be done. And again, he's he's going to back it up. This is this is a movie that's going to bring readers to his novel. Like, why would you not love this thing? It's good enough to where I can see it. Yeah, there's two types of authors, I think. I think there's the Stephen King, who's like, it's not exactly as I wrote it. And and this is the shine in The Shining. But, but Stephen King, he's, come back he's around both authors, him. right? Like, cause no, yeah. all, he, all the time will say something's great that is not. Um, if it's just if it's just like, I guess, more. He cares more about being faithful, I guess, to his work than anything else. But yeah, you're right. He famously doesn't like The Shining, which is, we in our opinion, a great movie because it is so different. Um I don't know. It's interesting, right? He's kind of both authors throughout his career. He's had so many adaptations yeah, yeah. done. But recently, he's a lot more yeah. everything's great, which I get. You're right, though. Like, you, you, what you're getting at is that there are some authors out there who are so um, attached to their work and they, they, they license it to be adapted, yet they can't give up control enough to recognize or to um, even appreciate a different version and say, like, it's different, yeah. but I still like it. Um and instead, they say it's it's bad, right? Like I I shouldn't have signed off. Right. Like, what's the advantage of saying it? Like I, I get unless it's a slap in the face. And and honestly, I feel like this is pretty rare. Like you don't you don't get this uh, yeah. a lot anymore. Because it's only if it's a slap in the face. Yeah. Like it's like clear that they hate it. they you don't see eye to eye in yeah. any way. They purposely tried to tank your your story or something like that. Well, and and that does happen sometimes, right? Where something is like unrecognizable and and you worry about it tainting your legacy, right? Like people are going to think people are going to see the movie and they're going to think that that's what your book is and they're not going to read it. And so that is that is a discussion to be had. I would say that if you're truly worried about that, you're going to have to give up the money that you're going to get. I'm sorry, and you're just going to have to not license your book. Like if you're really worried about it or you're going to have to be very choosy, which is a good option, you know, be really choosy. Maybe you won't get a movie made. That's definitely a possibility, but um hold out. You know, like like uh, we talked about Neil Gaiman has been holding out for a really really long time with Sandman. And uh, hopefully it ends up being great. But like he's finally found this moment where he felt like it was the right time and he's got the right people and they're going to let him have the amount of control he wants to have to make the adaptation he wants. So hold out for that, I guess. Uh, That would be my advice. There's one I thought really smart moment that happens in the in the film. It happens um, in, in during the war. It's at the very end of the movie, though. Uh, Billy Pilgrim collapses under the weight of a grandfather clock. Uh, I thought that yeah. was cool. I thought that was thematic. He's he's pinned under it. He's trapped by it. Um, and I thought, oh, he's you know they're saying something there. I, I like it. I don't know. Yeah. I just I had well, to highlight. It's, that. it's all of us, right? All of us are are trapped, you know, under the under the weight of time. Like we can't no, you can't do anything yeah, about we, it. We are we are stuck in a way that um, P- Billy Pilgrim is not in in some ways, but still is in others. Yeah. Very, yeah. very interesting. Um, and, and that transitions to him being on this dome and, uh, you know, this beautiful sort of sci-fi scene with fireworks going off because I guess the baby's there now and they're really happy. Weird. <laughs> but um, it was interesting. I still don't understand what they were trying to do. I don't either. It's an interesting moment, though, and it looks cool. And I was impressed with what they were able to achieve knowing that it's not computer generated. I love the idea that the Truff Amadorians uh, traveled well, and, you know, abducted them, studied all these cultures, understand human culture, but then just need to see mating and then birth or something. <laughs> very like odd, so very weird. odd. But uh, yes, let's make deliberations. We got to decide, the, is the book or the movie better? Okay, easy for me. It's the book. The book is 
brilliant piece of work. One of my favorite novels I've ever read. Um, you know, props to the movie. It's a good movie. Very interesting film to watch. Uh, I recommend it for all the reasons I said. It's not going to be for everyone, but if this sounds interesting to you, definitely check it out. Um, but yeah, it doesn't, I mean, it's not really much of a contest for me just because of how much I love <laughs> yeah. the novel. Yeah, in a way that's unusual for, I feel like, our projects, I really always want to stick up for the movie a lot. This this book, was like I said, after I finished, I was like, this is one of my favorite books I've ever read. And I went in with high expectations and, it, and met all of them and exceeded them. Uh, I think that the film is a fine adaptation. I think that there's a lot of creativity, a lot of great work went into it. I think that they understood a lot of what Kurt Vonnegut was trying to get at. And, you know, obviously it won awards and was nominated for things. It did well it can in 1972. So you can never take that away from it. But Kurt Vonnegut made like one of my favorite books ever. So yeah. it's easily the book for me. Okay. So it is the book for us. Um, we are going to announce our next project at the end of this episode. So stick around for that in just a minute or two. Um, if you enjoyed this episode, please let us know in the form of a rating and review. That's a great way to get the word out. Another awesome way to get the word out, though share the episode with a friend, you know, somebody who likes Kurt Vonnegut, let them know we did this coverage. We'd love to have that happen. You know, tag us in the post if you want or not. It's okay. It's cool. Just let, you know, spread the word. Yeah. And speaking of social media, we're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all of those at Ink to Film. You know, feel free to reach out anytime. Let us know if you want us to cover something, anything like that. We have the Council of Inklings on, on Facebook. Uh, we talk about upcoming projects and all kinds of stuff in there if you wanted to join. Yeah, and if you want to support the uh, podcast in another way, we do have a Patreon where we cover adaptation-adjacent things. We do experimental episodes. And if that sounds cool to you, check it out and uh, support us monetarily because, you know, we're a small indie podcast, and that's how we're able to keep the lights on and keep doing this. So we'd appreciate it. And thank you to Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. Oh, and one more thing, just because we almost never say it, if you haven't subscribed, like, apparently that really helps, <laughs> make sure to click that subscribe button, follow all that stuff on whatever platform you use. That That is another good thing, yeah. Do it on all the platforms. Yeah, follow us everywhere. <laughs> um, <laughs> anyway, um, we I am really excited for this next project. Um, it is one that we've been talking about doing for a long time, a classic of fantasy uh, a movie that I've seen, but a book that I've never read. We are going to be doing The Never-Ending Story. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, I'm just so into it. I don't know much about the book at all. Um, but I'm, I'm really curious, and I want to relive a bit of my childhood and watch that movie. Um, you know, I barely remember it. Yeah, we're going to start our next episode with us both singing a rendition of the theme song. So <laughs> be, be, get excited for that. No uh, promises. <laughs> yeah, I am excited to read it as well. It's been a little bit. And speaking of bonus content, there's probably some some ripe bonus content based on based on this. Oh, yeah, because you were telling me there's like a sequel and like maybe even a third movie that was made. Yeah. So, well, yeah. And, and it seems like the book is uh, the first two movies cover what's in the book. So okay. we'll see what, what's in the book and what's in the movie. So we're looking yeah, forward to we'll it. We'll find out about that firsthand. Uh, hopefully you come along uh, for the journey with us. We'll give our spoiler-free reactions to it at first. So definitely check that out next week. Um, but for now, that's going to be the end of our Kurt Vonnegut coverage. Uh, so much fun to get to talk about this author, one of my favorites. Hopefully we will return to him at some point in the future. Uh, but until next time. Keep adapting. Keep adapting.